and this season of the Making It in Nashville podcast is sponsored by Range Urgent Care. Range has a very special offer for all business owners and honestly anyone in Nashville. So please stick around to the end of this ad to learn more about that sponsorship. But first, we want to tell you why we love Range Urgent Care specifically for our small business. As a small business owner, it can be really expensive to maintain a traditional healthcare plan for you and your employees. And this is where Range Urgent Care, an Asheville-based clinic, can help really make a difference. With their business membership plan, you can give you and your employees the peace of mind and help protect them and their financial futures by giving them a place to go for medical care and avoid a potentially life-changing emergency room bill. The great thing is is that an employee membership is just $45 a month per employee, and it includes unlimited urgent care visits that cost $0. These visits include services like x-rays, flu shots, and even prescriptions from Range's in-house pharmacy. The membership also includes free virtual visits for those more mild complaints such as colds, rashes, UTIs, so that your employees don't have to leave their home to get checked out by a medical professional, which is pretty important during the current pandemic. Their employer portal makes it easy to manage your employee roster and invoices from wherever you are, and their business memberships can scale to the size of your business. With two locations, one on Merriman Avenue in Asheville and the other in Black Mountain, they make it very convenient as an option for any Asheville local business. All right, so maybe you're not a business owner or perhaps a corporate membership is just a little bit outside of reach for you and your business today. Range can still help. They offer a wide variety of other memberships, including family and individual memberships. And you don't even need to be a member to visit Range Urgent Care as they are also in network with most major insurances and offer affordable and transparent flat rate visits. And now for the special offer. Just for the listeners of the Making It in Nashville podcast, Range is offering a free first month of their annual membership. And that's any membership, whether it's business, professional, family, as Sarah said, all of them will get you your free first month uh, visit making it in Asheville.com forward slash range to learn more about this very special offer and more about the subscription plans. Again, that's making it in Asheville.com forward slash range for a free first month in any annual membership. of the intro to this episode of Making It in Nashville. Thank you for joining us. We are we are here with our neighbor and now friend Brian Combs, uh, the the founder and minister at Haywood Street Congregation, just seemingly doorsteps down from our, our office in downtown Asheville. Brian, please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to today, and then we will, you know, follow the threads wherever they lead us over this conversation. Sure, and Tony and Sarah, thank you for the invitation to be here. Glad to to call you all neighbors just from down the street. I grew up in Charlotte uh, and felt a, a calling as a as a youngster to be here in Asheville, and I've been trying to call this place home for a long time, and have been downtown for eleven years now. And part of that was starting Haywood Street, and married, have two young preschoolers now and find myself in middle age and at this serendipitous moment sharing a pandemic with you all yeah so uh, this is a new angle we've done this intro listener uh i think twice now but this is the one that's going to be live or, or recorded in posterity and so uh 
running a congregation, and this is a quick tangent, is it anything like running a preschool through a pandemic? Like how, how, <laughs> how has that been treating you so far? That's a great question. Unlike a preschool, ours, for example, closed in March and, and stayed shut until two weeks ago. We were very clear that Haywood Street had to remain open. And we had some very vigorous debates internally among staff about how we refused to interrupt our mission, which includes relationship. And I would argue far more dangerous than the pandemic is the isolation that so many people are experiencing. And if you are someone in poverty, at least what I have been told over and over again is I'm, I'm already pushed to the to the edges of life. I, I, I see the the moms clutch their purses and the folks idling at the red light roll up their windows. And there's a, there's a lack of, of connection. And one of the reasons I come to church is because I need to be seen and treated like a human being, even if it's only for a few hours. And we took that very seriously. Yes, we do food and clothes and medical care and, and church. But the truth is those are all holy excuses to, to be the family of God together, to, to move towards one another in intimacy what has changed because of the pandemic is we've had to interrupt our, our most basic instinct, and that is uh, to be with one another. So issues like social distancing and masks, what I have found is those are about 15th on the list of priorities if you're worried about where you're going to sleep and where you're going to eat today. However, part of our responsibility at, at church has been to say, how can we empower folks that don't have the privilege of worrying about whatever the latest update of the pandemic is. And so we give out masks, we've painted lines in the parking lot. We've, we literally closed our physical building because it's wonderful and beautiful, but it's also old and has poor ventilation. And there was no scenario where 500 people could be inside, which was be a typical day of church uh, safely. So we pivoted everything to the parking lot. We rented some big circus tents and we're, we're attempting to do all that on site, but just outdoors. Wow. Wow, wow. Well, tell us a little bit about what your daily life was like, I guess, pre COVID and maybe post COVID. Um, I'm curious to know sort of what, what you do every day. Sure. Post, um, post COVID it, it is very much triage. It's, trying to track the the collective energy of the staff. We are frontline responders. We were designated as an essential service by the city and the county very early on. We wanted to respond. However, after six months of of being among folks, um, many who, who, again, as I said, aren't able to, to practice precautions, it's taken a, a, a serious toll on the well-being of of our staff, just as it has on nurses at the hospital and cops downtown and firefighters are responding. Anybody that's uh, trying to, to move towards uh, large groups of people on a daily basis, there's a, there's a cumulative trauma about that. So trying to pay attention to how we take care of ourselves has been a, um, a, an intention that I have, have tried to bring to, uh, to our staff on a daily Pre-COVID, uh, a typical week, although you do your best to, to schedule things and, and know that extreme flexibility is required in, in urban ministry, would have included a, a seven-course breakfast on Sundays, 
sit down affair, tablecloth, linen napkins, fresh flowers, uh, candle, wait staff. Contrary to a typical soup kitchen, we, we want people to come early, eat all you want, usually a, a restaurant that would, would serve that food. Then we would have a church service. We feel very strongly that coercion and Christianity should never go together. So we give people an invitation to, to join us at church, but never, there's never a requirement. And plenty of people will come and eat, get clothes, receive medical care, get a haircut, get dog food, uh, but, but never darken the door of the sanctuary. And that's just fine. On Mondays, we, we have an internal focus staff meeting. We have something called the Mercy League, which is a de-escalation team to help intervene relationally when, when folks are particularly on edge. We have clergy meeting. We have a self-care group where we literally fill out an accountability sheet. Did you take your time off? How many hours of sleep did you get? What's your weight? What were the spiritual disciplines that you engaged last week? All with the attempt of paying attention to vicarious trauma and knowing that all of us have a threshold and on the other side of that is compassion fatigue. If if we can heighten our awareness about that, then hopefully we can be better stewards of our of our life and ministry. Uh, then Tuesdays, usually a lot of sermon preparation. Wednesdays, instead of breakfast, we have a big lunch. Worship after that. Thursdays is pastoral care, Bible study at the jail, try to check in with folks who live with us and respite, uh, spirituality group at the psychiatric ward, hopefully a time to visit folks in public housing. Friday's a little bit of administration, and then Friday afternoon, Saturday is is family time, and we've gotten in the habit of just trying to do something outside together. And then Sunday, back at it again. What a week! Holy moly! <laughs> oh my goodness! That sounds like a, that sounds like a lot to me. That's um, what what in the in the first time that we asked you to go through that week, the the thing that stands out as a difference to me one is just hey, that's a that's a very sounding intense week of service, but the time where you reflect on self-care, um, I'm very interested in that as a concept. How big is your team today? We welcome seminarians, residents, interns, so it fluctuates a little bit. I, we're, we're at like 23 members of, of staff right now. And... And has that always been built in, or is it heightened through the pandemic, uh, this uh, need to be at pay attention to one's own self-care? It's actually neither. I, I had one of those moments in ministry where I was shaken to my core, a woman that I, I care deeply about, a faithful practitioner who's been a part of Haywood Street and came on staff pulled me aside and just said, I can't be here anymore. It's, it's, it's too threatening. The environment is keeping me up at night. I'm struggling with rumination and intrusive thoughts. And I, I need more support. And up until that point, my primary loyalty was trying to live out the gospel. And I had to make a hard turn towards my primary loyalty loyalty shifting to the well-being of the staff. And that was a that was a significant moment of conversion for me where I had to to widen my focus. Uh, no longer could it only be 
how to square up to whatever Jesus is asking us to do, although that's still primary. But in in conjunction, it also had to be, we come to this work with different callings, with different trauma backgrounds, with different scores on the ACE test, with different triggers. That's all part of being a human being. And my responsibility now, different from those early years, is to try to be a, a steward of our own well-being. And in response to that staff member's uh, helpful feedback, that's when we we got really clear about, okay, let, let's do some self-care accountability groups. We've got a number of them. We hired two therapists that do a, a monthly check-in with small groups. We started paying for therapy and acupuncture and massage. We started giving people sabbaticals away, encouraging vacation, all these things that uh, hopefully invite people to a more sustainable place. The truth is uh, urban ministry is incredibly intense and there is an aliveness that comes with that, but you're regularly cussed out, spat upon, screamed at, threatened. You're regularly getting in the middle of folks who are um, struggling with paranoia uh, and are violent and, no matter who you are and what kind of resources you bring to the work, that that that's still uh, that still can be hard to metabolize. Uh, and exercise and sleep and therapy and all kinds of other those are good interventions, but we all reach a cap. And hopefully, these intentions we've brought to the staff can get ahead of that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it sounds a lot like that. Just put on your oxygen mask before you put it on your kids, right? Because you can't, yeah. how can you help them if you're not taking care of yourself first? But that, I mean, that sounds like so much to, to choose to get into. And so um, I think we asked you this before in take one, but I'm going to ask you again, because I think <laughs> it's important, which is tell us more about that defining moment when you decided this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to uh, be a part of urban ministry and I want to start my own uh, congregation. Sure. As I, I said, I, I'd back up the story a little bit. I grew up at church camp down the street in Hendersonville and felt as a radical introvert, very much at ease in the dish room where the door was closed wearing a soapy apron, listening to country music, Where whereas the extroverts were more uh, fronts and songs and shooting campers and all of that's faithful work. But quiet discipleship was very much what I felt felt called to. And I, I made a deal with God at that point. I was not going to do two things. I was not going to preach and I was not going to serve a church. However, uh, I continue to feel this this holy nudge, I, I share the ridiculousness of this as well with you, Tony. Um, yeah, and here we are. <laughs> it, here we are. And, and knew that I could, I could follow one track in life, and that was become an industrial designer, get married, have a family. And then at 45, I was going to have to end everything, uproot all of them, go to seminary and have a midlife crisis. So I said, instead of doing that, why don't you find the quietest place possible and then just pray for seven months? And I thought about the Peace Corps. I've got a, a family member that's a hog farmer in Indiana. I, I thought about thumbing my way to California, but 
the Appalachian Trail came up, so I went and did that and just spent those seven months out in the woods alone trying to get quiet enough to to make sure, God, this is, even though <laughs> this is not what I would choose, this, this is what you're saying, right? And sure enough, it was. So I, I went to seminary after that. And then. And, and just for timeline, this is like early 2000s? Yes. Yeah. Through hiked in uh, 2001. So then went to seminary, took a class on Howard, Howard Thurman, read a little book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And he introduced me to a God who shows up among us wearing the skin of a homeless man, a pauper, not a prince one who's close to the, the cracks in the concrete, concrete, not someone who lives in a gated suburban um, netherworld. And this was entirely contrary to Jesus of, of my upbringing that I learned in Sunday school. We've all seen that picture of Jesus that's in the, the lobby of the, the YMCA. He's got the, the blonde highlights and the blue eyes and the European nose and He's clean and manicured, but Thurman introduced me to a Jesus who who was dirty, uh, who had a criminal record, who was not taking his his psych meds, and there was a palatable sense of of the holy every time I would meet Jesus on the street, and that became the impetus for Haywood Street. At that point, I was on uh, the streets of Atlanta. I was supposed to be doing social work, but instead I was just loitering out in the city park where Johns were waiting for the next girl and where folks were trading crack and folks were dying of HIV. And it was, it was like entering the gates of heaven for me. It was literally a, an experience of, of God that I've, I've never, I've never felt anywhere else. And when it came time to start Haywood Street, what I was clear about was, I don't want to start a church. I just want to be with God. And in the United Methodist system, there was no appointment to urban ministry. It didn't exist. And this was the only path for me to be able to to live out my calling most fully was to, to help start something that didn't exist. And that's been somehow 11 years ago. Wow. And why Asheville? So, I mean, you, you, you kind of traveled around a bit and I know you hiked the Appalachian Trail, which is kind of goes through this way, but you, you said you always felt like you were called back here. Why, why Asheville? Yeah. As a young kid, we would go to Mount Pisgah uh, for the weekend and, and car camp. My grandparents would spend every summer at Davidson river and I would sit in the backseat of our Valiant. And back then there were no interstates up here from Charlotte and, once we would crest those first foothills, something would envelop my heart. I felt a sense of of belonging that at home I didn't. There was there was place here. There was something about these mountains, and whether you you name it religiously or uh, spiritually, some people say there's a enormous crystal under Pritchard Park that that draws people. Others say there's a hole in the ozone. Um, whatever it is, I felt that. And I just wanted to locate here. It also happened to be that there was a an empty United Methodist Church in the homeless corridor of downtown. And if I could have just written out a script for my life, it would have included Asheville. And in ministry, we talk about calling to, to a particular mission. For me, it's urban ministry. But I would say that calling to place is every bit as significant. And this may have been something you all have already discovered as you've talked to different people in town. 
most people I know, Asheville is home, and there's a particularity to that that that's not translatable. You can't just take on the road, and and I am I'm one of those people too that that believes this is where I'm created to be. So before you said that you grew up, you know, feeling quite introverted, um, and that you would never want to, um, you know, have to give a sermon and be a leader of a church and all of that. So I'm curious how you, you kind of branched out because you, it, it sounds like you do a lot of public speaking these days. And, and as an introvert, uh, I think that can be quite challenging. So how did you learn that skill? And then tell us a little bit more about, you know, growing into that role. It's still terrifying. Just name that. <laughs> and, and by the way, most preachers are introverts. I, I know some ministers that throw up before the sermon. I know some ministers that have a, uh, a mandatory trip to the bathroom. I know other ministers that have to do breathing exercises. Um, I, I would like to give you a thoughtful answer to this, but it, it, it's just been immersion therapy. That, that's that's been the only way for me to work through it. I I live with some dyslexia, and reading and writing usually, uh, if I'm not careful, can get a little bit tangled up. So the idea of of standing in front of a group with no notes, having memorized a sermon, and then giving that without any net is is intimidating. However. What I have learned about calling is it, it's almost always used in spite of you, that, that God has this habit of saying, like Moses, for example, he, he, was, he was the most re- reluctant leader of the entire Hebrew Bible. He was tongue-tied, he, he was avoidant, and he, he also had a, a, a dark history of, uh, of criminal activity, but yet God said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you. And this notion that, that somehow we, we, that God only chooses the folks who come with the best resumes or the most practice or, or, or the polish is, is contrary to what we see throughout scripture. In fact, Jesus had the same habit of, of picking disciples who were, were cast asides and roughneck fishermen and people who were, were, were sharp around the edges. And I, I would count myself among that labor pool that, I bring all of my foibles and uh, fallacies and and ask God to use them for for something bigger than me. But uh, but practice has been huge. The other thing that I would name is I preach didactically. Uh, I, I'm not a manuscript preacher, although I write a manuscript and then memorize it. But I don't stand behind a pulpit and read it. Further, the the weight of the sermon isn't carried by me. I'm not the primary voice. Instead, I I preach bookends. I, I do a lead in the scriptures read by someone else. And then I ask a question and the congregation answers it together. And I have no idea where that's going to go. And it is unwieldy and spirit filled and uh, opinionated and um, full of dissension. Uh, but it is fully alive. And then I conclude with something. And in that way, Preaching becomes a shared task, and what they teach you in seminary is worship's only at its best when we all participate. And much of Protestant worship, at least the worship I grew up, was you need to be quiet and sit on your hands. That's how you worship. But 
what we have tried to invite at Haywood Street is the exact opposite. We're we're all called to ministry. We all have gifts to share. The Spirit is calling each of us to say something particular and peculiar. So speak up, and it again, it may be unwieldy, but uh, if participation, not excellence, is what we're after, then all right. What do you think? Yeah, I I really appreciate that. I think um, it, uh, Tony and I both grew up Catholic, and so very very different going to church. And yeah, like you so, said, yeah. you're just sort of sitting there. Back and forth, and I was like, yeah, that doesn't I don't have any exposure to what that might. No, I mean you're just like. you're quiet, right? The only thing you do is get up and say the prayer with the priest. But I, I'm reminded too of. Um, teaching English. I, I used to teach English in Italy and the method that we, we used, it was a small classroom, but it was always about getting the student to talk. And, and of course, this is a particular example because you're, they're learning a language. And so of course they have to speak, but the entire method of asking questions and, and not, you know, it, it it's like you said, it wasn't so much about me as the teacher coming up with this grand lesson um, or speech, but more about provoking them or evoking them to say something. And, and that's how I think humans learn in almost all instances is that if, if we're not asking questions and involving people, how are they, how are they actually taking it in? They're probably not. I, I want to begin with the assumption that you're a child of God and that your words are inspired and that you are a minister. Uh, at the beginning of our worship service, when we're indoors, we remember our baptism. And the reason that's so significant is baptism is our commissioning. It, it's, it's the public declaration of God that not only are you part of, of the family, but you have now been given um, a holy task. And church is supposed to be the place where we acknowledge that, empower that, bless that. And, you know, one of the dirty secrets about preaching is that it, it, it can be a, a huge ego stroke for the, for the minister. Um, and I, I certainly uh, fall to that temptation, too. However, if we take seriously the ministry of others, then what better place to share, uh, to share the priesthood of all believers than the sermon. And uh, when folks are intoxicated and participate and psychotic and participated, it uh, it regularly goes off the rails. Uh, but it's I would never call it an interruption. I would call it a holy surprise. And I think of myself in those moments less as a preacher and more as a jazz musician, that I need to just center myself enough to listen to whatever you, what note you're playing, and then I'll riff off that. And somehow we'll, we'll make different music together than I ever could alone. Wow. I, so I, I, I'm a huge metaphor guy, big metaphor guy. I love yeah. that use of a metaphor being a jazz musician. Um, absolutely love it. One of the other metaphors that's coming up for me is like the idea of Aikido and using people's energy, not, I mean, in Aikido, it's like against them. So they swing at you and then you move. How, what have you learned through these years of being on the streets with, I, what I, my assumption is that people who have had maybe bad experiences with churches in the past or with uh, people who might look or that they, they create you as, uh, how do you use Aikido? What have you learned 
by way of like disarming and calming and playing jazz in public squares if it's not just uh, during a ministry? I tried hard to go ahead and name up front the reality that the church has been abusive. If I feel a, a visceral skepticism, which I feel a lot from people, um, I walk in the door and represent an awful lot of baggage for a lot of people who have been injured by institution. That's the truth. And whether or not I've participated in that, I represent it. That's, that's a reality. When I'm, I'm not wearing the collar today, but if I have a robe and stole on, if I'm wearing clerical gear, I, I'm the face of what has injured many, many people. And that's something I, I take seriously. Um, it's not uncommon for me to apologize on behalf of whatever body has, uh, has hurt someone. Um, so I hope I can begin an interaction, especially if it's hostile one, which, which happens occasionally with, a, I hear you. How can we begin from a place of empathy about what has happened to you? I would also give an example in our Mercy League. We were, we're constructing a living document, putting down on paper what, what we've learned over the years of de-escalation. And um, one of the strategies that we have figured out is that when someone presents uh, violently, they, they are coming to blows, they have a weapon in their hand. Often what they're doing is saying through body language, I'm hurting. Now, it, it comes with all of this other uh, masquerade of, of posturing and chest beating. But what most people are really saying is, I'm desperate to be heard. I need someone to sit with me long enough so that I can cry, so that I can fall apart, so that I can tell you that my mom died or my girlfriend broke up with me or my child got taken by DSS again. And... There's a way in which if, if you meet that energy by trying to get bigger than it, it only heightens uh, the antagonism. But what we were talking about as a group is if instead you get smaller, and this was something that I, I learned in pastoral care. They, they taught us that if you're a chaplain in a hospital, and most clergy do regular visitation in the hospital, you're likely going to have a congregant who's on the gurney there. And their whole experience in the hospital has been someone looking down at them, a doctor, a nurse, an orderly. And that's a, that's a disempowering feeling to always be looked down upon. There's no intention behind it, but literally you're on your back. So they would teach us instead, when you walk into a hospital room, raise up the bed as high as it'll go and then get down on your knees beside the bed. And then you look up at the patient. If you can do an equivalent of that when someone is 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 ready to to enact violence it not always but it at least tries to communicate hey i'm safe i'm trying to make space for you and how can we co-regulate this space together uh that that brings the temperature down and i would say when it comes to other folks who have been maligned by the church, a similar posture as well. How can I make myself as small as possible? I'm not here to threaten you. I'm not here to intimidate you. I'm here to instead begin from a place of listening. That's very dialed in. I, I am uh, I'm bringing back these 
trainings that are, are comparable and, and, and similar. And um, even, I'd say, in a very different scenario, in, in job interviews, right? So in, in a job interview, uh, past in a past life, and, and uh, one of the things that I would always do is when, I, when you walk into a room and there's a person sitting on the far side of a table and it, it seems like everyone else would have sat on the opposite side of the table, I would always choose, you know, the, the perpendicular, the, the, so, the edge to make it less confrontational head to head and more like, hey, we're already on the same side of this thing. And so I am very aligned with you on the idea of like how physicality in a room, physicality on the street, um, and even physicality in a pitch meeting, if we're to make it about business, which is where my mind always goes, is a is a real player. It's a it's a participant in the conversation. There's no question, and especially with folks that have lived trauma histories that are unthinkable, who have generational angst families ago. Um, the last thing you want to do again is try to overwhelm that and try to one up it. Instead, if, if you can, instead of squaring up to it, like literally um, I, I've read that when people are activated, they, they can only access the front of their brain, the, 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 the threat response part of our brain. We all know what that feels like. We, we can't, uh, process complex thought. We're, we're assessing everything about whether or not it's going to hurt us. And we're, we're past language at that point. Instead, how can we communicate with our bodies? And one of the things, in addition to getting smaller, is don't square up to the person. Instead, turn just a little bit so that they have they can assume the position of power. And one thing I've even seen us do periodically is we'll, we'll just take a knee out in the parking lot in, in the midst of some melee is we are here as a peacemaker. We we're not trying to intensify this. We're certainly not trying to communicate. We want to, to participate in, in the fight, but we are here as a resource. Wow. I just keep thinking about it's the opposite. If you know, you see a bear right. <laughs> in Asheville. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like you, you want to take up as much space as possible when you're trying to assert a dominance, you take up as much yeah. space as possible. You get as close and as big and as loud and the opposite does the opposite. You, you, you blade your feet, you turn sideways, you shrink down, um, to communicate and, and show, you know, palms of hands that are empty in a, uh, pre communication, show of uh either passiveness or safety i'm i'm completely i had a lot of experiences with bears on the appalachian trail i was gonna ask you uh, (laughs) contrary to what it said in the survival manual which is put your backpack on raise your hiking poles grab a boulder do anything to inflate your size instinctively that didn't feel right to me now i'm I'm not giving anybody else advice but for me (laughs) That's what I did. When I encountered a bear, hey, you're the dominant one. I, I, yeah. This is your turf. Hey, man, I, I'm just, I appreciate you letting me walk this trail. And I'm, I'm just going to ease, ease beside you quietly and as small as I can. I can. And thankfully, it worked out well for me. <laughs> wow. Wow. 
I've, I've still, I'm very low on total bear sightings in my first year and change in Asheville. Sarah's seen uh, a lot. She goes on more kind of neighborhood run. Yeah, I mean, mostly in downtown, not on any trails or in the wilderness. So it's like, it's a, it's a little less, uh, I mean, it's still frightening, but it's not, they're in our territory versus in the middle of nature. Yeah. You know. Like, I, there were cars around me. It's not like... Yeah. They know, take the buses to downtown periodically. <laughs> I know. They do. <laughs> they do. They really do. Rip, rip doors off a minivan. Like, yeah. Yeah. Would well, you all go to Bear Mountain in Brooklyn? Did you all do that some? Bear no, no. We've we've heard of it. But we, we've hiked across from it, like in Cold Springs and kind of up that way, I think. I think that's where it is. I don't, so, wait. Bear Mountain in Brooklyn? Like the no, it's not in, in Brooklyn, but it's it's right beside the city, and this is a, okay. a complete tangent. But that section of Jersey and New York is beautiful. Yeah. And, oh my goodness! Uh, anybody that thinks it's the Turnpike and the, the concrete jungle, it's there's such a verdant, just expansive, beautiful part of of uh, the the tri-state area there that uh, Bear Mountain is included in. Yeah, so we. I, I think it was our love. So the the process of getting there was a burden, but our love for the Hudson River Valley and all that you're kind of pointing towards. Uh, we did several trips up there, which was, you know, hour and change train to Grand Central, Grand Central to a regional to get out of New York and get green that when we visited Asheville, probably like the nine year old you going to camp or with your grandparents. It was, it spoke to us. Yeah. It spoke to me mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. this was, to me, it modeled that incredible, you know, hour away from New York experience, uh, except, you know, at, at, at way more, uh, possible to start something from scratch lifestyle. If you're an hour from New York, there are people who are making New York money that have, you know, for a long time owned all the real estate. Um, and so, uh, it, it was beautiful, but it didn't feel like it could be home. When we came to Asheville, it's more beautiful. And we felt like if we tried uh, hard enough, we could land here, start a podcast, and get there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did, how much of the Appalachian Trail did you hike? I through hiked it. I did all of it. Wow. How long did it take? It takes most people six months, although the former record holder, Jennifer Farr, lives in Asheville, and she ran the thing. and. A little over a month. I I did the opposite. I wanted to go as slow as I could, <laughs> so I took seven months, and I would have tacked on another month if I could. Which which mm-hmm. direction? I did what's called a flip flop. You get all four seasons that way, and I wanted to hike North Carolina at the end. So I started in Virginia, walked to Maine, rode a bus back to North Carolina, and hiked south to Georgia. How interesting! Sorry. I've never heard of the flip flop. Yeah, that would be the way I'd. <laughs> Yeah, you you end up connecting with all the hikers that are in it for the long haul. It's something like 99% drop out in the first few hundred miles. But by Virginia, folks are committed, and and that's where I started. So I was around folks that I could watch and learn from and ask questions of, and a friend had tipped me off to that. So I I took his advice and started ahead. Wow. Smart. What an idea. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, well, back to what we were talking about before from this bear Appalachian Trail tangent. Um, I, I watched this video about 
the fresco project yeah inside the church tell us more about that oh that has been a a, a love affair I, I think at the end of my life there are a few things it, that will be as significant that i've had a chance to participate in it's up with my my marriage my children um it, as i mentioned i i was a, a design major in college i've painted some on the side i feel every bit as much a, a creative as I do a, a clergy person. Um, and there's a artist in town who's become a dear friend, Christopher Holt. He was an apprentice for Ben Long, who has done many frescoes in Western North Carolina and is easily one of the most gifted living fresco artists left in the world. He does part-time Asheville, part-time Italy. And Christopher has studied with him for uh, a decade plus and felt led to do a fresco and it just so happened our sanctuary had a long wall in the back that would be perfect it was the the original wall uh, of the church from the late 1800s so it could support something this heavy and what christopher did that i give him enormous credit for is he much like a method actor chose to inhabit everything haywood street he came to all our meetings he would show up on wednesdays and sundays he would sit with people outside. He just made a habit of learning the very people that he would end up drawing that would become the, the models for the fresco. And in that way, it was, a, it was a living painting because these are folks that he chose to tangle up his life with, people that became uh, brother and sister. And it was just remarkable watching him say yes in the fullest way. And uh, the the the... The fresco is a depiction of the Beatitudes, which you all may remember. It's Jesus' most famous sermon, uh, and it's these nine blessings. Beatitude is a blessing. B blessed are the poor. B blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. And Gandhi, in response to the Beatitudes, said, if, if Christians actually lived out the Beatitudes, then I would be the first to convert. It's, it's that dramatic a notion of the way God intends the world to be. The, the typical Beatitudes we live by are, blessed are the warmongers, blessed are the privileged, blessed are the decision makers, blessed are the ones with the most likes on their Facebook. And Jesus, as always, is such a subversive. And he says, actually, no, it's the, it's, it's the exact opposite. And one of the misnomers, in my opinion, about Christianity is that, that God's, God's care is radically egalitarian. Of course, God cares for all of us. God created us. But I would argue that God has a preferential option that begins at the back of the line. And that's what the Beatitude uh, depicts, uh, 28 feet long, 11 feet high. And you have congregants who sat with Christopher. He drew them uh, in uh, by a window in real life, and they become the characters that, that give life to the Scripture. Most of them are homeless and formerly homeless. And one of the things we talked about a lot was for a, a well-heeled tourist to come to Asheville and sit in that sanctuary and look at a fresco and have a entirely different encounter with the very best, in my opinion, of who Asheville wants to be. And in my opinion, what Jesus's central message is would be, we hope confrontational. We hope it would provoke a discussion and raise questions about the disparity of wealth. How, how is it that we can have the Biltmore Estate, the Grove Park Inn, and hundreds of people homeless all within a few miles of each other. Um, 
regrettably, the fresco came to life right as the pandemic started. Uh, so we have not been able to welcome the public there. There is an exhibit, the North Carolina Museum of Art, and we started to open the sanctuary for prayer with uh, just a few people. Uh, but we look forward to that being a, a place of dialogue as people come to, to see that art. Wonderful. And yeah. I'm not sure if it was this version of our conversation where we talked about jazz and, and the metaphor of jazz. I love metaphors, also love puns. Yeah. And it took everything in my power to let you finish because I wanted to say yeah. that the, the B attitudes are the, the good ones. The A attitudes threw them out because they, yeah. Yeah. They, weren't, they weren't nearly yeah. as good. It was, like, you know, it was the first draft, got rid yeah. of it. <laughs> the attitudes are the good ones. Yeah, keep them or coming. something to that effect, right? Yeah. I mean, the A attitudes are the Facebook liked version, <laughs> and I don't support them. B attitudes all the way. Sorry, I, I do want your podcast to get a lot of Facebook <laughs> likes, but <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I, I know you're. You gotta play, sometimes you got to play the game, but uh, B attitudes. Oh, it just. Oh my goodness! I loved. Um, I so. And this is a silly question, but for anyone in the audience who might be considering it, I'm thinking it too. Fresco, really big painting, or is there more to it? Is it on uh, uh, something other than canvas? That's a great question, Tony. What's different about a fresco is this is a this is an antiquated art. If you, if you go in the ancient caves in Egypt, what you see on the wall is a fresco. That's entirely different than surface painting or painting on canvas. Fresco is literally taking wet limestone, placing pigment in it, and then letting a uh, chemical reaction happen where it bonds together and becomes stone. Wow. So if, if left untouched, it, it could last in perpetuity. It, it's, it's literally the, the world's most durable art form. However, there are very few people that practice this. For example, when the, the limestone is wet and you apply plaster, you put a a filler of horsehair. Um, there are endless details that go into a fresco that make it entirely too expensive and labor intensive. And it's why very few people apprentice in this medium anymore. However, Christopher's analog in a digital world, and that's part of his beauty. Um, I would also add that we received a, some criticism about why we would make such a significant financial expenditure on a piece of art. And I, I had two responses to that. One is, why do we make the assumption that people in poverty also don't have a need for beauty and awe and music and poetry and mountains to look at? We would be happy to spend that on folks with housing, but somehow um, for folks in poverty, it, it, it's wasteful. And Second point I would make is it's exactly it's wasteful. And there is a precedent throughout the gospel where Jesus, for example, with the feeding of the 5,000, he, does, he doesn't just feed everybody. He has 12 baskets of, of leftovers. There is, a, there is a way in which he doesn't just give you enough, but more than enough. He doesn't just heal one leper, but 12. There's an extravagance about his love that uh, just defies the ledger. He refuses to be a good businessman because he pays late arriving laborers an equal wage. He, um, over and over again, he just skews whatever the mathematics are of economy and says, no, 
we will be a people of abundance. And the fresco is, is an attempt to communicate that writ large. It's wasteful. Absolutely. That's the point. It was expensive. Exactly. That's the point. We want to say to the people in the fresco, your story is that significant that we're going to put it uh, forever on a wall for anybody that ever wants to look at it. You matter that much. Mm. Uh, snaps, if you're w- not watching YouTube, we're, we're praise hands and, and, <laughs> and giving uh, a lot of love. I'm curious to learn more about this little quote that you have um, in your Instagram profile, which is, in quotations, relationships above all else. Where did this come from and, and why? I am not the curator of anything we do social media. Mm. So I, w- I will say that we have an incredibly gifted uh, woman named Brooke who, who handles all that. She is a, an artist in her own right. And I, if there's anything on social media that you think is, is well thought through, that's, that's all Brooke. Uh, and she's actually the one that wrote our mission statement. And we went through multiple iterations, myself included, and and couldn't quite reduce it down to the essence of who we are. And typically in urban ministry, the assumption you begin with is there are people in desperate need. Let's figure out how we raise money to meet those material needs and then move on to the next person. What I learned in seminary is that that can be a dehumanizing and objectifying process because Instead of a person, whatever they're presenting can turn into a project that needs fixing. Um, I need a hotel. All right, how do we solve that? I I need to get in detox. All right, how how do we get you over there? I need clothes. All right, are you a size large? And those are all important things. I'm not disparaging that. However, we can never be too careful about trying to make every encounter um, as human as possible. And oftentimes, urban ministry begins with the, the assumption that you are a stereotype, and Haywood Street wants to undermine that in every way possible. Further, if you're the person that's doing the giving, that can oftentimes uh, devolve into a kind of works righteousness where I'm actually not here to serve you. I'm, I'm here to pat myself on the back in a sense, and it creates a, a power differential that I would argue Christianity has perpetuated in a way that's that's violent to the spirit. So how do we find as many ways as possible to gather together on equal footing? And that's where the intention of the mission statement came from, is that's what we're really here to do. Yes, food, clothes, shelter, medical care, they're, they're all needed. Yes. But they're holy excuses to gather. That's really what we're doing. And when we gather, God has promised to turn that into a sacrament of sorts where, where God's presence is made palatable. And, and that's certainly the experience that was so life-changing for me on the streets of Atlanta. I kept bumping into Jesus. He, he didn't look like what I had been told he looked like. I'd never seen a poster of that, but I, it was him. And if we take seriously that that's the way God comes among us, that it's always relational, that there's no such thing as practice uh, of, there's no such thing as faith practiced in the absence of community. Then we, then we're onto something. Uh, I need you, you need me, we need each other. And that's a, that's a, a contrary notion to a, a sense of American individualism that we're often taught. Instead, we begin from a place of dependence 
Um, but nevertheless, that that's in my opinion so core to to Christianity and who Haywood Street's uh, trying to be. Further, I would add, when you say to someone who's educated and privileged, your salvation is bound up in the person you pass coming to church holding the signs and they need work and food. That that's a paradigm shift of the soul. For that person to say. I have literally every material thing I could want, and yet I, I still have places of deficit that can only be met by somebody who the world tells me is not like me. H- how does that relationship begin? That, that's, that's what Haywood Street's so interested in trying to cultivate. I think that's really beautiful and, and well said, and, and I would even... And maybe this is too far of a stretch, so I'm sorry if I'm, I'm taking your words and like stretching them, but I think that that is so important to everything, like every business. I mean, we talk to a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs here in Asheville, and I think, you know, we, we, we always ask them questions about marketing and sales and how, you know, creating this product, but ultimately it's, it's all about that, building that relationship with your customer or your supplier or your, your coworkers and, and understanding how you can serve those people in the best way possible. And that when you do that, all the other stuff kind of comes into place um, without, without really thinking too much about it. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm left with a feeling of, uh, or what struck me in that is often fixing the thing isn't, like the truest form of service. And so one of the greatest gifts I was given as a pre-wedding present, uh, from a mentor of mine was the language and the, and the framework of, do you need me right now to hear you? (laughs) Do you want me to help you or do you want me to handle it? Yeah. Those three H's, uh, have been a gift in our relationship where I am, I am drawn to, Fix the things. Sarah's communicating there's uh, some issue. Fix the issue. Rarely is that what the right choice would be. And so now I have the language like, am I, do you want, how would, how am I best to serve you right now? Like, you just want to talk this through. And then, you know, conversation and relationship is the actual goal. It's not necessarily a night's stay. Um, and that's, I, I find myself, I don't think my brother listens to this podcast, but I find myself in that way with my brother. He and I are fundamentally like we were born of the same, uh, tree, I guess, but we are branches <laughs> headed in different directions. And, uh, what I, my, my gift to mm. my, myself has been this focus on just being there with him on the phone, no expectations, uh, and, and focusing on hearing where he's at, checking in and not wanting to fix or change or, or solve anything for him when we, when we have the, the, the time to connect. As strange as this may sound, compassion is a word I'm leery of because, because compassion, if you go back to the original language is I am so bothered by whatever is happening in the world that I'm, I have to mobilize my angst to do something about it, which of course we need that. But I would argue the primary response, at least the first one in ministry is empathy. 
And what's different about empathy and compassion is, is empathy doesn't require action. It is simply solidarity with suffering. I'm going to make space for no agenda. I don't need to fix you. I don't need to redirect you. I don't have to reframe what you're saying. I'm just going to hold a container for whatever it is you are bringing to me. And that's the slow work of a relationship. You, you can't accelerate that. You can't cut corners with it. But of course, that, that's where my opinion, God, God most arrives is in the overlap of each other's uh, story. Uh, when we eat together, pray together, uh, share life together, do, do the hard, messy work of relationship with, without the agenda of, I need to fix it. The other thing I would add is for many church people, I want to fix it because I'm so anxious about what you're presenting to me. I, I'm overwhelmed by how hard your life has been, and fixing it is a way to preoccupy myself with the details of sweeping something or digging something or moving something. And instead, how do we grow our tolerance for discomfort? And no, I'm not going to move. I'm just going to stay here. And whatever you want to share, I'm going to try to try my best to make room for it. To me, it sounds like uh, all, all of that. All, everything we've said in the last handful of minutes is a, a effort to be present, right? To live yeah. in the moment and not in the future where it's better or go back to the past to where the thing happened, but just be present. That, that's what I'm hearing through that. Speaking of present, Sarah... <laughs> Uh, do you have, uh, and we have a list of important questions that we want to ask. How are we doing on that list of important questions? You're doing great. Because that's not present at all. That's me living <laughs> and uh, producing this episode. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're doing great. Um, well, I, I, I guess I'm curious to know what you do when you're not working and, and when you, with, what do you do with your family on your days off and how do you enjoy Asheville? I had a mentor share with me that you need a a self-care regimen that's every bit as intense as the work you do. And and then he suggested Ironman, which I knew very little bit about. Um, so I not talking about the movie here, people. This, no, this, this, not talking you know, about this the also, movie. This connects some dots. I, I'm, I'm, I'm can, I can trace this thread. The long walk through the Appalachian Trail, uh, the hard work of ministry, it somehow calculates in my mind that you would also do the most absurd <laughs> physical <laughs> challenge as well. Continue, please continue. So, Iron Man, how long has this been happening? I think I'm at year eight now. and. The races are less the point, but it's it's the getting up early. It's the... It's the long runs and swims and rides and back to that whole issue of how do you metabolize vicarious trauma. For me, exercise is just a non-negotiable. So that's a six-day-a-week thing. Usually it happens before the, the girls wake up, but I, like this morning, got a run in by the river. And uh, I'm I'm a centered place when I can be embodied. And Tony, I don't know if this is your experience, but I've just heard so many men say, I can't track the sensations in my body. In fact, at least my enculturation taught me that I I should not be embodied. I should be disembodied. That's an 
a version of masculinity that I have internalized. And there's something about exercise that helps me get back in my skin. Uh, so I, I, I do that like a zealot. Um, on the weekends, we we do all kinds of things as a family. We, we've been in a habit of, of going to lakes, Lake Lure, Lake James, Lake Jocassi, and our, our girls are, are little, but they anywhere there's a beach and a chance to put their floaties on, they're in for it. Mm. Uh, my wife and I have also made a priority, even though she's a therapist, we both work full time. We only do half day preschool. So one of us takes the girls to school, one of us picks them up. We tag in and out about who has the afternoon. We, we try hard to share meals together. Um, we, we care about being present for those little girls. And one of the things that I've heard many preacher's kids talk about is, yeah, my, my, my dad was always at the church meeting. I, I didn't see much of him. And I would like to defy that, that precedent that has been a part of the Protestant work ethic for a long time. But um, trying to figure out how to say no to other things so I can say yes to those little girls. Yeah, I, this conversation reminds me of our conversation with Keenan Lake and just the idea of overwhelming amount of service to the community, to uh, every other stakeholder, it seems in, in your world is someone that you're passionately trying to serve and how much effort that has to that has to take from you but also um how perhaps family could be the the one ball that gets pushed aside in support of the the mission uh that you're working towards and it that's amazing that you can even come close to balancing all of the or, or juggling all the balls that we've heard about in this episode. And then on top of it, uh, for those of you keeping track at home, Iron Man is, if I'm not mistaken, a marathon or, or is that like, am I, am I right? Cause it's one thing, a triathlon's hard. Yeah. Three sports. Iron Man is the hardest of those three things. Mile swim, uh, marathon, and then like crazy distance on a bicycle. Is that right? That's correct. If you do the full Ironman, since I became a parent, I, I said to my wife, no more full Ironmans for a while. So I, I, I do the half Ironman. So that's, a, Ironman. I'm just half a man. No, no, no. And, and uh, one of my other mentors used to say, uh, less worried about placement, more about participation. Uh, and yeah. the practice, the practice of, of training for it. That's to me incredible. How, how old's your oldest daughter? We have a four year and a half year old niece. She's sniffing five now, huh? <laughs> Holy moly, October. She's four and a half too. So she's a, oh, she's a, a contemporary. Fun, oh, what a fun age. We got to get my niece down here. Yeah. We'll, we'll get them all playing. Cool. I, I wanted to go back to, to something we, we picked up earlier, this, this notion of um, how do you make this work sustainable? Mm. And Sarah, I had said to you that, Oftentimes, the assumption about ministers is that we have this purity of altruistic intention, that we are just self-sacrificial givers, that we are a martyr for the cause. And there's certainly some people that very much identify with, with that. However, in my calling, and certainly folks that I've heard say off the record is, is far more accurate, is rather, I'm in ministry for entirely selfish aims. And that's because I want to encounter God. And in 
my own experience, my spiritual biography, all roads lead to a Jesus who, again, locates on the, on the corner of poverty, who is in the padded room in the psych ward, who's behind bars looking at a, at a life sentence, who crawled out of a tent under the bridge. That's where I find God. And that's the thing that can't be a negotiable in ministry is I've got to have multiple touches with the incarnate Christ among us. He, he shows up hiding in plain sight. And he is there. Um, and that's one of the things that um, I have heard numerous people say in ministry is, I- I'm here for entirely selfish aims. I, I just want to be with God. Yeah. Sarah, can you remember the movie we watched with Gareth Higgins in his Dreaming the World? I don't remember the name, no. But I, I was thinking about this movie as well. We'll have to send this over to you, Brian. I think that you... Might appreciate it. It's called like mm-hmm. Jesus of Mawa or something like that. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know. So it's it's a film set in modern day or New Zealand, New Zealand, maybe early two thousands or late nineties, but it's it's modern, uh, and it's this guy who son of God is that it? Son of, and and he's Jesus's brother, mm. and it's and he, most people think that he has you know, a, a psychosis or some sort of uh, mental ailment we're looking at. We're trying to look it up now. Uh, not son of God. Uh, and it's this, it's very, it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, Gareth Higgins episode, if you haven't listened to, uh, was a huge, huge moment for us and that our relationship with Gareth has been, um, we're so grateful to have connected with him. But, uh, I, this, if only a thought activity, but perhaps the truth of the personification of Jesus, the way that you're speaking about him is something that I'm, I struggle with often because Sarah and I have more than enough. We, we shop at Whole Foods. We hit the, 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 the Merriment corner and there's always people at the corner of Merriman and the Trader Joe's. And so as a, as a community member in Asheville who has more than enough, uh, and, and without trying to prescribe and, and use the word should, which I have issue with, what are first steps that people like us might take in supporting those who have less? From your perspective, sure. I would start with uh, the the reality that that's usually Raven, who's working that corner. And Raven was a child prodigy as a pianist. And her mom came to church one day and told us about her life. And uh, she is creative and gifted and incredibly bright. And she's a uh, she's very much a vessel of the holy. There's a there's an immediacy about God in her uh, that if the only experience of Raven is, again, idling at the red light, and you see her with the sign, um, might turn into some kind of lazy stereotype about what poverty is. But she's a real-life human being with an incredible story, and her giftedness is so obvious when you spend just a little bit of time with her. So my counsel would be try to find as many humanizing ways 
to meet that person so that they're not a character on the caricature on the corner, but, but rather a neighbor. She lives downtown. She's just a few blocks from where you all are. And see if you can put yourself in positions. Again, maybe you eat together. Maybe you uh, are in the pew beside her. Maybe you wait in line to get a haircut after her where th- there's a normalizing of humanity. Because again, if we, if we stay entrenched in our, in our, our little defined boxes of where we are supposed to move through life. Well, I'm a cis man and I have a master's degree, da, 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 da. Then, then we don't bump up against the possibility that God is also alive in somebody else. And that's the, that's the gift of, of Raven and so many other people that find a way to, to trespass the boundaries that society has set up for us about us and them. Those are false lines in the sand. They actually shouldn't exist. And in God, of course, they don't. And then consider the possibility, just as I have mentioned in my own biography, that actually maybe that's that's God on the corner. And then the encounter becomes entirely different. Perhaps, again, we we come to Raven empty-handed, needing something from her. Consider the encounter then. And if you do that, ask Raven to pray for you. She is a, um, again, she's just a, a vessel of God's word in so many ways. I'm left with feeling this sort of sensation of, well, not sensation, but um, question that always runs in my head is that, right, like, sitting on that corner. And I think a lot of people have been in this position. You're you're in the car by yourself. And there's this physical barrier between you and that person that's on that that street that's asking for money or food or whatever it is. And there's this awkwardness that always comes up in my mind of, of thinking, well, I really want to help them and I feel really bad and, and I, you know, I want to do something to, to make their day better, but I'm also scared. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm also just afraid to say something. I mean, what... How do you overcome that? What What would you do if you were sitting in the car and and? Well, what I do when I'm questions. at that light is I roll down my window and stick my head out and say, "Hey, Raven, how you doing?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that that began at some point with me just saying, "Hey, I'm Brian. What's your name?" Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like you, you got your your tray in elementary school and you walk into the cafeteria and you're the new kid and you don't know where to sit. I, I feel that awkwardness too. I would discourage the urge to help as a first beginning, because again, that sets up that power dynamic that it, I, I would argue is, is so demeaning to everybody involved. To the person who's receiving something, they, they become a project in many ways. And then to um, the person who's giving, you in a sense are perpetuating a dynamic of um, always being the helper. and. Yeah. To be the helper is a much safer position. It's it's much more comforting. And I wonder what would be the riskier thing to do. I'm I'm not advocating for you to do anything that is unsafe, but emotionally riskier. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to require relationship. So back to our mission statement. Uh, how, how can you move closer in one way or another? And maybe in that three seconds at the stoplight, the only thing you can do is make eye contact, which... I've heard plenty of people say, 
that's actually the most painful part. It's not getting screamed at about getting a job. It's not having people throw things at me or spit at me. It's actually that nobody looks at me. Yeah. Yeah. Like the guys who work the light at the mall. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's a few hundred cars every 30 minutes. And if nobody looks at you, what does that do to your own sense of self-worth? I think you've you've hit something uh, rather profound, and there are a couple Instagram accounts locally, uh, and the names now I'm escaping, but like under Asheville maybe or uh, Beloved Asheville. Yeah, stand out. Yeah, underneath uh, Asheville is the Instagram post of a kind of incognito photographer. And 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 Beloved, I've seen recently, and just the idea of what I, what I saw, I mean, it's just very timely, but was, um, that exact statement of like, I, I've never, I'm never seen and no one's ever told me that, uh, I have the ability to do anything or or something to that effect. And so where I'm left with is calling back to uh, a handful of months ago of, um, you know, I'll say we attempted to be of service and in being or, or, or doing a good thing and doing a good thing missed the mark. And the better thing would have been, uh, to ask what, what does support look like to you? Cause I see you and I care about you and I want to support you, but only with something that you would consider helpful and, and useful and, and of service. And so, um, you know, I've, I've often like either handed out a peanut butter container or bars of food. Uh, but who's to say that's, that would be even helpful. And I, what I'm hearing is, Hey, I think your name might be Raven. I see you at this corner a lot. I'm Tony. Uh, next time we go to Whole Foods, can we grab something for you? Or uh, how are, like, how are you? <laughs> something to that effect. Sorry, light screen. It's just, uh, it's such a fleeting moment, but I'm, I'm hearing you on, uh, the risky, vulnerable relationship building step is the step. And it's not, here's a dollar or here's, uh, a power bar. As the first move. There, there's a the there's a bishop named Peter Story who is in South Africa, and he had a, he would have these church groups come and uh, work in the ghettos, and he would always say to them, "We are so glad you're here." And the first time you go to to meet the friends of this community, you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. You have to come empty-handed. You can't you you, you can't dig a well. You, you can't fix somebody's roof. You can't bake a casserole. You just have to come empty-handed and simply hold tension to get to know people. And, and that, that has served as a, an underscored reminder for me that, all right, let's start there. Wow. So we're going to be speed rounding to, to close out okay. the, this conversation, but uh, very, very hopeful that this is just the beginning of a much longer conversation and relationship. So, me too. So, uh, we call this a speed round. Doesn't necessarily be speedy, but alas, you've already mentioned some places that you love. It seems like lakes locally. Are there any other uh, places in nature that really stand out for you or perhaps to you like personify 
not personify, uh, are the epitome of Asheville's nature experience. I try to ride my bike to Craggy Gardens twice a week, get the sunrise up there. That's a, it's one of those thin places, as they say. Uh, it's an incredible spot. That's a hard place to, to drive to if you're not familiar, <laughs> if you're not from town. <laughs> hard place to drive to. Not easy to ride a bike up to Craggy. It's a fr- frequented it's route way, for the cyclists in town. But. It, it is, it is. Yeah. I imagine it's uh, uphill both ways, yeah. it seems. It does not seem like an easy ride. Yeah, I would say Pritchard Park downtown. That's a different kind of um, landscape, but the, the intersection of all of Asheville happens there. And it, it's a curious history to think about. It used to be a bus depot and then, uh, homeless folks were, were banned. And now it's some kind of a, a mixed, uh, crowd there. But, um, yeah, Pritchard Park always feels like a heaven's gate place to me. Nice. Um, are you are you a reader? Do you do you read a lot of books? I own a lot of books. Uh, with mm-hmm. the, the demand dyslexia. with dyslexia, the demands of a church and two kids, I I pine to read more than I'm able to right now. But I, I love to read, even if it's it. harder Got for it. me than than other folks. Got it. Well, well can you tell us about either a, a book, movie, podcast, um, any sort of media that maybe has had a a impact on you or has influenced you greatly recently? Let's see. I just watched this documentary on this guy, the iron cowboy. I don't know if you've heard of him. He did 50 Ironmans in 50 days in 50 States. Oh. I've, so wow. I've heard of that. I've not heard of the documentary, but that, that, that sounds uh, like about 49 to right. if you ask. I uh, got four hours of sleep each night, uh, endless health ailments. And, uh, you know, one of his takeaways was there's a resiliency of spirit that uh, there's an endurance inside all of us uh, that, that that can be inflamed if, if, if we give it enough air. And he, he's not a specimen of an athlete. That's what I so appreciate about him, nor did he have the bravado of a, of a professional. He, he was a average Joe kind of guy who worked out in his, in his cluttered basement and somehow pulled this thing together. And the, the story is very honest about the fallibilities that, that came along with his pursuits. And uh, it felt like a human story more than a, an Iron Man story. Uh, I'm, I'm left with, um, I don't know if I've, I think I've probably said this in one episode or another, uh, there was a, a kid I met when we were kids. We were both in college uh, at a leadership event, and he used a metaphor of me that I'll never forget, which is the idea that you know the, an engine's capacity is fixed. It's a 200cc engine. It can only do 10 horsepowers of work, 100 horsepower, whatever it is, that's it. But the human spirit, the human heart, the human uh, machine can grow to take on any burden that is given to it uh, so long as it's added, you know, with, with reason over time. And, um, and I'm, I'm left when spending time and sitting with people like you, um, I'm left inspired by the capacity, clearly, uh, of the, the human heart and the human body to just 
do to, to do the things that you ask of it. If you are consistent and persistent and, uh, just kind of show up. And so I imagine this iron cowboy is, uh, another, you know, example of the human's ability to do the thing that it's asked to, to do. And Tony, you had alluded to this earlier, uh, the early years at Haywood street were bleak. Uh, there was, there was every invitation to be resilient and, uh, to, to, to get back up again over and over, uh, before any traction, before there was a budget or staff. And, uh, that's very much been a, been a part of our struggle, uh, in the early years. Yeah. And it's gotten you to where you are today, being able to throw money at a fresco. Yeah. Right. Like imagine that 11 years yeah, ago. Indeed. <laughs> imagine that 11 years ago. Well, and even more than that, I would say, we mentioned this before, but yeah. just the number of people that have recommended that we talk to you mm-hmm. um, is, is, I think, a testament to how much you've built mm-hmm. in, in Asheville. Mm-hmm. Um, so that will lead into the next question, which is just a fill in the blank. Asheville is blank. What, what words come to mind for you? Transition. Uh, you know, when I came to Asheville, you used to be able to get a parking spot downtown for um, at least three months during the winter. I mean, most of the restaurants mm-hmm. didn't exist, and the ones that did were closed for the season. And as we have been named to every top ten place, I don't know if you all saw the one that said Asheville is one of the places to visit most in the world. Uh, th- there has been a, a crush of attention and uh money and, and, and new folks among us. And much of that is incredible, yourself included. Um, and I see Asheville as a city wrestling with its core identity. And I pray that that does not include pushing Raven out and displacing her from downtown. There is a, there's a bohemian spirit about this town that drew me here. As I said at, at the beginning, I, I grew up with a, a white dad and a, and a brown mom. And in the South, that doesn't leave you a lot of places to belong. And I spent a lot of time wondering where it is that, that, that I, I fit in. And that was part of what resonated with me so much as a kid. It wasn't just the mountains. There was something about the ethos of this town that said, if you're a struggling musician, if, if you're a, um, anonymous artist, if, if you're a, um, a, be- a bohemian of sorts that, that can't seem to, to make it anywhere else than go to Asheville. And that's very much my story. And again, for those that have felt on the edge of life that they have not been the center of things, there has been a, a welcome embrace from this town for the others that I would include myself in. And I, I just pray that Asheville doesn't sacrifice in the name of whatever the next list is. Heard. And thank you. Um, if so, the, the next questions I think are, uh, are the, the final questions. And the one question that we've asked, Every guest, I think, so far on the podcast is if we had a magic wand or some listener in our in our audience had a magic wand, is there 
what would you ask for today? I would ask for 20,000 apartments that were deeply affordable. That's what I would do with that magic wand. So I've been in a housing crisis for a long time. Land is expensive in this town, a million dollars plus an acre. NIMBYism is alive and well, just like it is in every town. Resources are short. Anytime you mix politics and real estate, it is volatile to say the least. And yet uh, people keep dying on the streets. And if they had keys to a permanent address, then they would still be alive. It's, it's literally that simple. And I sense a swell of um, coalescing support around affordable housing. Uh, but th- that's what I would do if I, if I could pull one genie out of the bottle and say, go to work. Beautiful. Brian, um, is there anything else that we miss that you would like to share on this podcast today? I don't think so. This has been a, a gift for me. I, I, I felt the real affinity for you all and a rapport that uh, was there off the bat. So I, I hope you all know that there's a, you all bring an easy uh, spirit to the room that makes people trust quickly. And that, that goes well for a, for an interview. <laughs> Very generous. I, I think whatever you're feeling from us is just us trying to match your uh, openness and welcoming. And so with that said, uh, how would people who are listening come see you, find you on the internet or otherwise connect with uh, the congregation congregation on Haywood Street? Normally what I would say is just show up on a Wednesday or Sunday, sit at the table, come to church if church is your thing, loiter on the corners, breathe it in, get it on your skin. During a pandemic, that's that's a little a little more challenged. Um, if you want to learn more about us, uh, at least from a distance, and you can certainly do that at the website. Uh, Brooke, as I mentioned earlier, just wrote another profile on a dear friend named John. That's a, a beautiful biography of his story. So there's plenty of content out there. Uh, but I don't ever want to confuse content with relationship. It, it, it requires uh, sharing space with someone. And the only way to do that is to, is to come. Now, in my opinion, Haywood Street's much bigger than that little plot of land on the west side of downtown. If, if you choose to engage Raven, that's a, that's a version of Haywood Street. So find that, that wherever it is and, and then lean into it. Fantastic. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure. Thank you all so much. 